Hello and welcome to Breaking Social. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And we're the founders of award-winning marketing agency, Campfire. In our new podcast series, we sit down with a guest to unpick their business journey and find out their secrets to success in branding and marketing. This week, we're speaking to Sharmadine Reed, MBE, a businesswoman who understands exactly how to engage and grow a community online. Sharmadine was the founder of War Nails, a brand that paved the way for the nail art trend and led her to starting her business today, The Stack World. The Stack World is a subscription service that aims to socially and economically support women through content and online networking. We chat to Sharmadine about the true meaning of community and her approach to growing them online throughout her career, how she spots trends and uses them to drive her brand strategy, and the importance of having just 1,000 true fans. Thank you so much for joining us, Sharmadine. I wanted to start off with your background in brand consultation and communications. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about that and how it led you to working with brands like Nike and ASOS? Yeah, so I originally started my career as a stylist. So that means choosing the clothes for campaigns, dressing people. So, you know, I remember doing like the French football team and doing the shoot for the new kit. And then I would be casting like teenagers for ASOS and making sure that their clothes match their personality. And I think that when I was on set, I always respected the client's wishes as well as trying to be as creative as possible. So I would be, you know, trying to get their commercial objectives across while also being creative. And I think a lot of the stylists at the time just wanted to be purely creative. So because I had that commercial, like, you know, sensibility, a lot of the clients started inviting me to the office after the shoe, asking me to look at bits and bobs, give my thoughts and feedback. And that's essentially how my uh, consulting career kicked off, which was that I would have a strategic and kind of business-minded point of view to the visual campaigns that were being created. And I must say, we did not get taught this at uni at all. So like, I just had, um, I guess I just had a very natural journey into making all of these different types of commentaries about what I thought about what they were doing with the business. And they liked it. So you were saying that you were it started because you were a stylist and you were you were going to certain shoots and essentially being able to um you know not only be creative but also keep in mind exactly what the client was doing that was sort of would you say that was that was the start of that consultancy career Yeah I would say that was the start and because I didn't come from a traditional consulting background I didn't have like a specific remit for how I operated or I didn't really have a strategy I just would be getting get given these briefs um and i would just fulfill the briefs if i'm honest it was quite as simple as that they'd say something like you know we want to know what the latest trends are in dalston amongst like 25 year old girls and i'd be like okay cool here's what the trends are and then i'd put together a presentation and then and then that would be it right and obviously now like what you're doing now is wildly different to that um you know serial and entrepreneur um was this always the plan was being an entrepreneur always the plan when you were uh, consulting I would say it's not actually wildly different because what I'm really good at is spotting trends in the market and what and telling people like about those trends and communicating those trends but I would say you're right insofar as I never thought I'd be acting on those trends and I think the nail salon was the first time 
when basically I was like, I'm going to build a nail salon myself because I can see that beauty is a trend in Asia, in America. I can see that these things are growing, but no one's really doing anything to, to execute on that. So the nail salon was the first time that I was like, I'm going to make something that I definitely think will be cool in the future. And not only were we kind of like on the zeitgeist there, but we, we pioneered it, you know? Mm. And at the time when obviously you, you were launching Wire Nails um, or even Wire Magazine at the time, you were saying there that like you had this ability to be able to pick up on trends. When at the time, social media, if it was around 2005, wasn't really a thing back then. How were you picking out trends at that time? Clubs. I'd be going out to nightclubs all the time and I'd just be like, oh, three people are wearing silver trainers today. That's weird because no one's worn silver <laughs> trainers since 2001, you know. Or it would be like, oh, that's cool. There happens to be. I was just really good at pattern recognition. And I think the amazing thing about club culture is that you see, or, you know, maybe not now. No, I still think now. You see people in that two things. You see people at their most extreme version of their personality, but you also see them in, in little clubs, tribes together. So you don't see one lad in sportswear and palace and a bucket hat. You see six of them all together, all wearing the bag across the body, all wearing the same trainers, whatever. Or you might see a girl who like is a cool girl and a creative, but when she goes to the club, she goes extra by wearing something she would never normally wear on the street or at like a work party. So seeing someone at their most extreme, but also seeing them in their tribes together amplifies what that trend is. And then nine times out of 10, that trend will trickle down to the mainstream well, it used to be two years later. Now it might be two days later. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, I, I would say that what social media has done is really, really reduce the speed by which trends travel around the globe. Because back in my day, I had it quite easy. I could go to um, Nike and tell them, in this tiny little place in Sheffield where you will never go to because you're all executives, this is happening and I'm the only person who has access to it and you have to trust what I say. The difference is now is that executive could look online somehow and figure out whether that's true or not, which is why I think, you know, the digitization of trends of influencers is, is really incredible because they the data is pulling out trends almost like in real time, I would say. But then at the same time, it means that you don't get those really weird, authentic new trends. I still think you need a human element to pass those trends, to decipher what they actually mean. And actually, one of the things that I used to do, which I still love doing in my work, is not only looking at the trend, but trying to understand why. Because if you understand why, you can probably predict the next one. So, for example, you know, the the trend of the of the last, like, I would say 12 to 18 months for fashion and interiors has been like puffy, cosy, squishy things, right? You've seen squishy handbags, squishy sofas, padded coats. And you know that the world wants to be enclosed in a womb-like, caring, nurturing state. You mentioned that... Previously, it took around two years for trends to trickle into the mainstream. But do you feel like now that social media has become a part of it, do you feel like it's also increased the speed that trends are 
evolving and then dying out? Oh, that's a great question. Um, what makes a trend stick is probably one of the most interesting things right now, rather than thinking about why they evolve. And I think that the forces that make them stick are just as random and secretive as what makes them start. So, for example, I would say accessibility to purchasing that trend is critical. So, for example, I remember when this is going to sound so random and not even a thing, but I remember when in my head, long black pencil skirts were going to be a trend. This is for ASOS because of a 90s silhouette coming back into fashion. The problem is you couldn't actually buy them anywhere because the manufacturers hadn't like commissioned that style. So even though like at high level fashion, so, you know, on the catwalks, it might have been a long black pencil skirt. It wasn't even on the catwalks. It was more just like cool kids in fashion communities would be buying vintage ones from Nicole Fari or Jigsaw, or, you know, those kind of brands that are like Power Woman in the 90s. And the problem is, is you couldn't actually buy the skirt. So if you searched like black long pencil skirt, this is pre Boohoo and pre ASOS super fast fashion, where you can now pretty much Google anything and buy some variation of this, right? So like 10 years ago, you couldn't purchase a long black pencil skirt. That meant that it took a while for the trend to pick up. And then the trend will carry on by virtue of how many people make that product easily accessible to the masses i think if you can't actually buy into it it's not it's not going to last i think back in my day people used to hack together the products they couldn't buy so i'd watch a you know when you're a fashion student and you watch a gucci show and there was a long white coat if i couldn't get that i'd find one in a charity shop and i'd like be like yeah i'm like on trend so i think accessibility to the trend is a key one I also think like the social proof or the validation of that trend. So you want to find, depending on who the individual is, there's a sweet spot of where too many people are consuming the trend and it doesn't become cool for you anymore. But you might be a later adopter for whom lots of people wearing it is validation for you. And that's what you need to actually buy into it. So I think it's, I always think of trends almost like living, like a, what's the word for when birds swallows, like a migration? A murmuration. A murmuration, exactly. That's how I see trends. I think they're constantly moving and flowing. And I feel like you just never know which one bird is going to start leading the formation and then how it kind of spreads out or dissipates you know you watch them long enough you think that the birds are all going to go off and do their own thing and then all of a sudden they come back together so that that's how i see a trend as a living breathing organism and there are some ones that are really easy and predictable like i'm quite obsessed with the concept of a hero bag you know <laughs> like a bag pops off what makes that bag suddenly cringe or what makes it not cool anymore, or what keeps it going. Like, I've got a Bottega cassette bag in black that is still seems to be riding high. And then at that point, it breaks through and it becomes a classic. You know what I mean? It's like, how many trends can break through and then they become a classic? And then being part of that trend means something completely different. It's all quite fascinating, actually, isn't it? 
Absolutely, yeah. I think we we deal a lot with that and mm. the creation of trends in our in our own work. But we just and I'm sure we could go on for it for another for another couple of hours if we could. But uh, you've spoken a little bit about closing war nails before. But in a nutshell, can you could you describe to us how it came to an end and and how you envisaged the evolution of that brand as well? So it came to an end really because I couldn't stretch myself between two businesses and I wasn't sure at the time how I was going to merge them together. Now I can kind of see how I would have merged them together, but at the time I was very, very overwhelmed. So the end of One Else to me was like on its 10-year anniversary, which was symbolic because it was like a decade. It was almost like saying goodbye to my 20s as well. Um, And I decided to close it because I just... At the time, again, I couldn't see the wood for the trees. It didn't feel like I could scale it in the way that would make me feel comfortable. I felt like it it needed, it was so inherently part of my personality that I was like, how can you replicate me in all, all of my complexities? Now, I can see how a digital platform like Beauty Stack, which is what evolved out of WA, and even bigger like the Stack World, I can completely see how a physical space could be distributed globally. That would be like the outposts of the digital product. But it was hard at the time for me to see how someone in Paris would be able to replicate the jungle rave scene influence of London. You know what I mean? But I often look at Soho House as like a benchmark for this, right? Because... I've been a member of Soho House since I was 23. I bought an Every House membership because it was an under 30s cheap one. They only had four or five houses at the time. And I remember just thinking, oh, this is cool. I can go to four places. I never imagined in a million years it would expand to the global footprint it has now. And I think that is like a masterclass in cultural standardization while still feeling you know, like a global network. Like on one hand, I I love that I can go to Berlin and know exactly how the burger's going to be cooked or the chicken's going to be cooked or whatever. But at the same time, you know, I also love that the building feels different and that the people look different. So yeah, it's it's really inspiring to me to see that. And I wish that maybe a few years ago, I had a team around me that I felt would be able to take it in the place that it probably should have gone because people still talk to me about war today. People still come up to me and is like, oh my God, I got my nails done in 2010 for my birthday with my five friends. They really remember every detail of it. (laughs) And it was quite a cool thing. Yeah, it was really cool. And just just for anyone listening, what were the key takeaways that you got from scaling uh, a business what was the difference that you found i would say with war nails my key takeaways were have a strategy in place as early as possible because i definitely thought it was a side project for a long time until it took over my life right so that means i didn't really have a strategy i was like i'm going to open a shop for me and my mates and it just went crazy the second thing is is i would say as early as possible find partners and partnerships. The reason I share this is because a lot of women that I mentor or speak to are very nervous about partnerships because they have this fear of being taken advantage of. 
And it's true. I was taken advantage of quite a few times, actually, early on in my partnerships, you know, had people licensing my um, work, but not paying me. I had all of these things. So they're well within their rights to feel uh, apprehensive about partnerships. But the problem is you can't really scale your business without them, whether it's distribution channels like big retailers, whether it's a manufacturing partnership, whatever it is, you, you kind of need to meet and make deals. That's it. And then I would say the third thing is, is to ensure that you define and set what your what the essence of your brand is. So your vision and mission principles, the way that you operate, what makes you special as a business. Because if you are thinking of scaling, like the essence of your company will be needed to be able to scale your business as big as you want it to be, really. You need those foundational principles. Towards, obviously, the end of, of Wire Nails, how did that then lead on to Beauty Stack? So with Beauty Stack, it really came from personal experience whereby we pioneered the use of images from a salon. So before WAR, you, would have, you wouldn't have a portfolio that was constant. You would have a portfolio that was static. You would have a website with five nail pictures on it. You would have a facial website with stock imagery on it. What we did was we used Tumblr and then following Tumblr Instagram to constantly share pictures every single day. So we had this living, breathing portfolio of work. We also would tag them so people could search through these thousands of images. And what it meant was that because we built on Tumblr, which is obviously a social network and Instagram, those images were distributed globally, which is how the trend popped off. Like, WAR could have existed and no one would ever have heard of it had I not used Tumblr to basically share our pictures. The problem is, is that people were screenshotting Tumblr and Instagram, emailing them to us, then using our terrible booking systems because they were all ugly. So the experience was very broken. They were going from a cool visual experience to then a really crappy, like, 1992 booking system. So then... I was like, wouldn't it be cool if you could just book the picture? That was it. Wouldn't it be cool if you could book the picture and then you could see what your friends had booked and if you really liked my lashes or my hair or my nails, you could see all of the pictures, my stack, you know, like my technical stack for beauty, like what's my beauty stack? You could see them all and you could book them and then maybe I'd get a cut, maybe I'd get commission because I sent a new client to that person. So this kind of visual social booking system started to form in my mind and then I was like you know what all these guys are raising money I'm gonna do it so then I pitched to a VC I became very immersed in startup culture um, and yeah that's when I just decided to make a go for it and I started working on it and then the pandemic hit that's kind of one of the things that when we were doing the research about you, I really admired uh, and we really admired is that uh, I think a lot of people when they come up with an idea like the beauty stack and uh, and how I'm sure like for anyone listening as well, how vivid that concept is and how much it almost kind of is where it seems like Instagram is still leading towards um so ahead of its time in a lot of ways a lot of people can romanticize their business idea quite a lot and stay really really attached to it to the point where they maybe stop listening to what the market actually want and what your customers are are actually looking for at that time and you sort of took 
a lot of the concepts from Beauty Stack and moved them into what is now the Stack world. Would you be able to talk a little bit about how you sort of navigated through that sort of maze and if there were cues that you picked up from your audience, what it was that made you sort of move into uh, the Stack world? That's a really great question because it took me a long time to let go of it emotionally. And, you know, I was really gutted because I had gotten my brain fully committed to economically empowering beauty, wellness professionals all around the world. And when the pandemic essentially decimated our business, I was they were grieving you know these are women who are financially insecure they live month to month they are usually on a cash basis what they earn they spend etc they were depressed and it was like making me depressed and we became like a beacon for them because i would put on all of these business talks and you know i'd create all of this content for them i would do government briefings for them but really i still held on to the idea that we were just going to go back to normal. It was only towards the end of 2020 when Boris announced the last lockdown that I was like, if we don't pivot, we're going to die. So I definitely, the surface level of me pivoting to the stack world was in motion because I'm a very action orientated person, right? So I will do whatever it takes to keep the business alive and I will do whatever it takes to survive. So on the surface, I started implementing what is the stack? What's the business model? You know, the stack world is going beyond beauty. And I started talking about this a lot. The stack world's going beyond beauty to power all women entrepreneurs everywhere. And we're going to give them the content to help them get ahead. We're going to create conversations to help them build their network. And then eventually we're going to facilitate their commerce, which is essentially the beauty stack part of it. And the whole time I was talking about this, I'm still trying to really convince myself about it because I'm like, you're letting go of a vision of yourself that you held. So you're grieving the loss of that future vision you know and then I would say that it's only until very recently actually when you know the stack had been going for six months now and we've had a super fast growth rate and you know we've now got over a thousand thirteen hundred members actually to date that I was like this is this is actually working this is great but I still want those big guns, that global marketplace, and I really care about women making money. And if we just create content and media, we're essentially doing what every other women's platform does. If we just create community, we're essentially doing what everyone else does. As I know that the uniqueness of what we've built thus far and the uniqueness of the fact that I've raised venture capital gives us, and the uniqueness, by the way, of the fact that I have a full engineering team, means that we can build payments infrastructure, we can allow the women to monetize themselves, we can build, you know, bookings and services and products and all of these things that maybe uh, an amazing growing women's community doesn't have, you know, and they're using various tools together to scale their community. So my goal with the stack world now is still the same as beauty stack, which is to help women grow their economic power 
it's just that we're just not doing it for only beauty professionals. And what's really interesting anyway is during the pandemic, we saw huge growth in, um, we actually had to add them as new categories. We had to add coaching, therapy, and just business as categories because we saw massive growth in people signing up to the platform to sell their social media marketing workshops or to sell their you know business advice or strategy advice or whatever um so so you know to your point on listening to your users the stat world is a really roundabout way of meeting that demand and i think you have built even though you know you talk about things like building payments into the platform being in the future even at this point uh, before the podcast charlie our producer was showing us through sort of she's a member she was showing us through uh, the app and connected with the founder of trip drinks that you can find in sainsbury's oh, yeah. and, and other shops and so there's still that community there but but what i wanted to ask was you've you've obviously built this community behind you with starting with War Nails and then moving to beauty stack and this community's followed you to the stack world how did you go about building that community and maintaining that community as you've pivoted through through these different platforms? Well, it was quite difficult because I didn't want the beauty community to think that I'd abandoned them in any way. And we actually gave them a huge like discount. Even now, if they had a beauty stack account, they can sign up to the platform at a massively discounted rate. But I think that the beauty community always knew that my interests were really wide and varied because if you look at what I talk about it's all it's really random and it's very like global interests and um the thing I heard the most when we launched the stack world was women would always say to me I've been following you for a long time I'm always been into everything you're about but I just wasn't that into beauty so actually it was the other way around it was more like the community of the stack were, were kind of waiting for us to expand out of beauty to fulfill the things that they're interested in. And for me, I don't, I think that I don't strategically think about community building for the first thousand people. I'm definitely thinking about it strategically now that we've gotten over a thousand because we want to hit 10,000, right? We want to like, get to 10,000 and 100,000 and a million like that's the goal but yeah you have to think strategically about that in the first instance I just put out what I like and if other people like it that's fab <laughs> what I know I like but as it happens when I put out what I like I'm fortunate enough to be into a lot of random things so when I say to the team I really think we should do an article on you know, medical misogyny, because I keep hearing from all of these women that they have chronic pain and they're being ignored, then that resonates with people. I'm interested in it. The audience feels part of a community because they feel heard and listened to. But, you know, it's definitely not in a strategic way. I actually think I've got a deck somewhere, like how to create a community on LinkedIn or something. I need to dig it out and see because I wrote this like ages ago. Maybe I need to update and do a new version. You've inspired me. How to create a community in 2022, you know? Because I would say that when I'm thinking about that deck, it was like you have to set what your manifesto is, what you stand for. Because your early community members are actually self-selecting to be part of what 
they believe they stand for. So I'm always really clear about our mission, our manifesto. I try and take a very like theoretical approach to what we do. So even now you're talking about, you know, Charlie connecting with Trip Founder. What I say is women are locked out of deals because they don't have their network. And if you're not part of an Oxbridge or McKinsey or banking alumni, like how do you get access to deals and deal flow? So it's like, you know, I think about these things and I write about them and then talk about them. And then that will attract the early adopters of the community who are bought into the mission, really. And then once they're engaged, you want to cream your top 10% most engaged people and use them as ambassadors and referrers to the network because the best, um, to me, the best customers are ones who are referred. And I would probably aim for 30% of your growth to be coming through referrals because that's how you get a proper viral loop. That to me is how you build community. But community is very different to a market and I think a lot of brands just think about a market. I think if you're audience cannot self-reference each other they're not a community so you know you and i are a market of people with hair no but we don't have the same hair and then let's say even if we were both black women you might have braids and i might wear wigs and we're not a community and then you know it goes even deeper like maybe you have braids but it's a very specific type of braid so then you have a community of um, you know, black British women with braids, that's a community that can self-reference each other. So if we can't look at each other and immediately understand what the bond is, then that's not a community. Like you might have a community of podcasters and you're in a room and you can all understand after 30 seconds of talking, oh, we're all here in this room because we're podcasters. So we're a community podcasters do you get what i'm saying if you dropped your community in a room but you didn't tell them all why they were there could they ascertain within 30 seconds why they're all there because that to me is what a community is now i feel very strongly that if i dropped my stack world members in a room together they wouldn't even need to start talking they just look around and be like we're a diverse cool mission-driven community of women doesn't matter whether someone's a waitress or whether they're a ceo they stand for something and they want to see change in the world and that's how i have built our community that whoever you are whatever your career status is if you want to see the world looking different than it is today you do so by joining this the stat world and from hearing you talk then i think i think it goes without saying like your understanding of community is at an incredibly high level like your ability to understand what makes a community a community and how far that goes is incredibly strong and i think a lot of people will look up to that and really want to understand how to do that themselves if they're looking to do a similar thing or aspire to to, you know start a business like you have what would you say is like the very first steps for anyone who's listening who wants to know how to start a community or to foster a community of their own what are the first few steps to be able to do that in your opinion I would say that my first step is to just write on one side of A4 how the world will be different with your community in it because that's your manifesto. And then once you have how the world will be different with your community in it, you will start attracting people who also want to have a similar view and outlook on life. I think that 
even though very large communities are kind of brought together for what the network gives them rather than what they can contribute to it, I would say your first, like I said, first hundred or first thousand are looking to contribute even more than they are looking to to take. But then, you know, you have a community of 200,000 like people in one Facebook group. To me, that's not a community, right? There'll be a tiny percentage of those people who are active within the community. You want to keep your engagement and your activity in a community really high because when you have low when you have low activity within the community it's not really a community it's a marketing channel so if you want to start a community my advice would be to start with your manifesto or your mission statement we're about to launch a feature that allows women to host their own micro communities within the stat world which is really exciting and when, when we launch that feature, I will be doing many, many pieces of content on how people should grow their communities and their networks, because I do think there is a art and a science to it. And I think that I've done it naturally. And what I'd like to learn is how to like codify that, I guess, <laughs> and share it with other people. Because I think communities of more than a thousand people, you have to break them up. This is very much led by the fact that we've hit over a thousand. And I'm like, the higher the number gets, the less engagement you'll get. So how can I break it up so that you get these sub 1000 communities across the stack world that all feed into a bigger world? You know, like I'm a big fan of Kevin Kelly's thousand true fans essay. Mm. And I just... I think like, okay, so I've managed to get to a thousand true fans for the stack world. But beyond that, I want to help other people get to their thousand true fans, you know, because otherwise it gets too big. And then people, this always, this happened with what? This always happens with any court or community. I remember the OGs when it was just us. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> remember the OG stack community, or I remember the Wild Girls. As we expanded and we went from like five staff to like 50 or whatever, they'd be like, oh, do you remember when it was just us and we could wear what we wanted and play what we wanted? Mm. <laughs> and I was like, okie dokie. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really interesting point. And I think there's a massive relation between community and communication and you've you've got your first class degree in in communication uh, as well and i wanted to ask how much do you think having that knowledge and training in communicating your ideas and articulating ideas and the way you speak to different groups of people how much do you think that has contributed to the success of your businesses i feel like communication is everything right not just to be able to communicate to like your customers but I would say that the wheels of organization building don't turn if you don't have effective internal communication and you don't know how to necessarily manage your team or talk to them in a way that makes them feel appreciated. This is something I had to learn, by the way, because I wasn't always good at this. I was very good at communicating outwardly, but inwardly, I would just be like really impatient and like, why isn't it done now? Come on. <laughs> like, you know, and I really had to learn that you can't really motivate people that way. So 
I made a conscious decision to change my style of communication or never be able to scale a team. So for me, communicating is like a number one skill for sure. I think CEOs who do nothing but communicate and don't actually execute can still get by if they've got an effective team executing. As long as they communicate clearly what the expectations are, what the vision is, what the milestones are, they could spend their whole lives. And I imagine, and I can't wait till I'm there, that good CEOs just do that, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, rather than literally doing everything. So, yeah, I, I feel like my ability to communicate has been instrumental in my growth but I think it grew from reading a lot I think you can't be a good writer or talker without reading or consuming a lot I watched a lot of film tv youtube like you just need to be a consumer of information I think high quality information by the way yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be able to share it like sometimes I'll hear someone talking and they'll use a phrase and I'll be like, that was really clever. Like I met this guy once and he would never say, but he'd be like, da, 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 that said, da, 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 da. And I was like, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> he never said, but, or however, which is a classic. He went, that said, and I was like, so I'm going to take that. So now... Because that word but has a negative connotation. And I was like, oh, this guy's a masterclass in like charm and negotiation and appreciation. So, you know, I think language is such a powerful weapon and powerful tool. And I treat it like another skill that I have to acquire. So if I hear someone use language in an unusual or effective way, I will always note it down because it's really helpful. Like, even in the meeting, I won't say that I don't like, you know, unless I'm really tired and I lose all sense of hope, I will be like, I won't say that's terrible or I hate that design. I'll be like, I find that design really challenging. Right. <laughs> that's, that's good. A lot of the things that you're talking about just then about community and especially uh, communication to be it internal teams or then your community. There's probably a lot to be taken when it comes to marketing, to be honest. You know, we work with brands every single day across their different social channels who have got hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of followers um, across their channels. Do you think there's stuff that those brands could take from this kind of thinking about community rather than looking at it as solely a marketing channel? Well, one of the things I'm really excited about with the new communities that we're building is the opportunity for brands to build their communities when they want to attract affluent millennial women, they can do so within our platform. Because the thing about social media is it's, a, I, I call it like a megaphone. It's like a trumpet, right? Like you can make all of this noise, but you're not connecting your audience with each other. So I always think about that with all media platforms. You're essentially just megaphoning out, megaphoning out, and it's a one-way flow of information. So it's like brand or media channel outflow out to audience. Now, if you try and think of that as a triangle, whereas like how can you be the brand that flows out to an audience member but connects them with another audience member horizontally, like 
how do you do that? And I think like commenting on Instagram and like replying on other people's comments is the first step to it. But like, how do you truly create a network? As you just said, Charlie met trip like that to me, that happened without me touching it. That happened without me having to do anything or like facilitate that. I just literally created the playground for that connection to be made. So for us, when a brand wants a VIP community or early adopter community, they should be able to build a really small, like I said, sub 1000 VIP group on the stat world for women that they want to share, you know, new product drops, discount codes, if they want user feedback, if they've got a really early product, they should be able to have like parties and events that are exclusively you know, for members of that community. I think that the last like 10 years of influencer culture has all been about scale. And I actually think that more and more I'm hearing people talk about engagement and like what's the engagement score on it. I just would go back to the fact that with less than a thousand people committed to your brand, you're going to have a higher engagement naturally. And rather than think about how do I attract 10,000 people, think about how do I attract a thousand high quality who are then going to tell nine of their friends because they're so engaged in the platform. I always used to say that I would be able to look at a gang of five girls on the street on Oxford Street or wherever hanging out at Topshop RIP and I would immediately be able to tell which one was the leader like immediately and then I'd only have to sell to the leader because she's going to tell she doesn't even need to tell her mates by virtue of her influence her four other friends will want whatever she wants and there's always one girl who just has things a bit extra they were our war customers those girls would come into WAR, they would have their nails done and they'd be walking around for two weeks with these cool nails and every single person they came in contact with, they would be influencing. And like, for me, it's cheaper to acquire the one who is really engaged, who's going to tell her four, five or nine friends than try and build a network of 10,000, you know? Because 10,000 people aren't engaged all at the same time for anything brand related. I just don't believe that. You know what I mean? Like at the same time, 24 seven, I'm, I mean, apart from Nike, I don't know, even then, like when you think, what, what does engaged even mean? Like I'm talking about thinking about it, talking about it, looking for it. I think engagement peaks and troughs with people's lives, what they're into, also with product drops, you know, like everyone's obsessed with Drake album one week. And if you think of the peak of everyone who's obsessed with Drake album last week versus people who are thinking about Drake today, there's a gap there. Do you get what I'm saying? So why not just focus on the people who are obsessively thinking about Drake 24 seven and the ripple effect will touch all of the ones who are thinking about Drake two or three times a year. You know what I mean? I remember I'll never, one of my best community lessons ever came when I was 14 years old. And I remember this girl at school, Zara Braganza. I remember being in, eating my lunch. 
just, you know, chilling in the canteen. And she comes up to me. She puts a little bit of paper, like a, almost like a clothing label sized bit of paper on the table in front of me. And I pick it up and it was a Microsoft Word designed flyer that she had made saying Backstreet Boys album is out this week. <laughs> I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. And I remember thinking, Zara Braganza is doing free promotion for the Backstreet Boys album. She went on Microsoft. She did, oh, wow. and this is like 1997 or eight. Yeah. yeah. She went on Microsoft Word. She made a pink and purple clip art. You know, crappy clip art like bit. She printed it out. She cut them out. Cut them out into little bits of paper and she's handing them out at school i was like that's a super yeah. fan yeah the <laughs> lifetime value of that we're still talking about that in 2021 that's lasted that is that is a true fan you know what i mean and we've moved away from these obsessive like fans we've moved away from people who are literally obsessed with things um you know go to every concert i think like you have rihanna fan pages and stuff like that on instagram i love those people those are the ones you should be targeting because they look after you i think actually artists have done it really interesting when you think about like you know the rihanna navy or whatever they calling their fan base because you know lady gaga's monsters because though you wouldn't call yourself a monster unless you were an obsessed like super fan Thank you so much to Sharmadine for joining us and we can't wait to see how the stack world expands into the future. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Breaking Social. Make sure you subscribe to us so you're notified when an episode drops and if you want to keep up with what we're doing at Campfire, make sure to follow us on our socials in the show notes. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode.